You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today, Drew McDowell. Hi, Drew. Hi. Hello. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Very excited to talk to you as you've been uh, part of the experimental underground scene for decades upon decades now and have uh, had your hands on so many different things. And as the day we're doing this interview is the official release of your new box set on Deus Records, Lamina, which is a collection of your solo albums and some odds and ends, some live performances, some uh, cassette stuff, the Hacity Deluge cassette and a couple other things. So really nice overview of all your solo work. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I kind of can't believe it's finally out because this has been a it's been a long process. I mean, this was supposed to come out in uh, 2020. I mean, we've been talking about, it, you know, uh, Deus and I, uh, Gibby and Ryan and I have been talking about it for years and just... You know, I was like, yeah, yeah, well, no problem. You know, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll do this, and it just became the more that I tried to do it, the more kind of analytical it became. It, you know, it really felt like some kind of deep dive into the into the psyche. <laughs> you know, because it's like creative process for me is you know all about bringing the psyche to you know to life, but. But, but in an un, you know in a fairly unexamined way you know it's like I let it be the fuel for the creative process and then once I'm finished recording I generally don't dig through the archives that much so like having to go through and I certainly some stuff there that I, I spent a long time d- deciding whether to 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 put in things that were like really personal things that I recorded at moments of personal crisis and illness <laughs> not to get too like heavy or heady but it was like what I thought would be a quick process ended up literally taking years and <laughs> you know thankfully Gibby and Ryan were like at least patient i mean i don't know they might have been like you know, cursing me behind my back but they were very patient with me ryan came over and like helped me uh you know at least tr- you know have a first pass at sort of organizing the material and of which then i completely just pulled it apart and you know started at the beginning again yeah well i mean it's a it sounds like an easy task. Compile your albums, your recent works, and throw some extra stuff in there, right? But then when you start looking at all of it, thinking of the other things, I mean, you went so far as there's there's sort of two extra discs in here of material that has been added to it. And each of your solo albums are pretty different from each other. I mean, you, there's a clear progression from starting at Collapse up to Agalma. Yeah. Techniques and ideas keep expanding within the work. So... It's a massive, uh, massive box set, and I encourage any of our listeners hearing this to, to pick it up from Deus or Drew. If you have any shows coming up, <laughs> grab it there. Thank you. And you also had some new artwork done for this box set for the unreleased discs in the uh, box. Yeah, um, Rosemary, uh, Rosemary Johansson, and Colin Fletcher did the uh, did the. Um, you know, we kept the the original four album. Uh, artwork you know on, on the cds uh but they did an encompassing um box set uh that was just really incredible i mean i'm i'm absolutely absolutely astonished by how good it is you know and like i like that they, you know they, they they use the inside of the box as well you know to create uh you know as part of the artwork as well it just really it looks really nice it looks like a nice object you know i saw the proofs saw the mock-ups was part of the process and all the way through but then once i had the physical object in my hand i was kind of stunned i was like oh this is a really beautiful thing it kind of makes me you know that idea of this tangibility of something you know i mean i get like the whole download thing, you know, it's, you know, I don't have anything against it, but sometimes when you have a, you know, a tangible object in your hand, it definitely is a, <laughs> it's a different experience. Yeah. It's a good and impressive energy to have that physical object. Yeah. Yeah. You started working with Ryan and Deus 
around 2015 is that correct is it earlier than that or around, is that around the right time uh, well you know when i first in 2012 i played uh i did um my first my first actual solo show in uh since uh like the late 90s you know i hadn't played any solo shows uh i'd done some collab shows but i didn't really enjoy playing live um and uh i did a modular this uh there was this series of shows in new york called modular solstice that uh nathan curley has a project called long distance poison that's really good and he was putting these uh, shows together on the solstice and equinoxes and one of ryan's projects uh, played i'm not sure if it was the first show that i did and you know we met we hit it off and you know he said you know if you know if you ever want to release some of this that you're doing and uh that was you know where the idea came from and we didn't get uh, i think collapse was released in maybe 2015 but it was probably recorded in 2014 I should know. I don't actually remember. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was you know that that was the connection there. You know, we just you know we really sort of hit it off, and um, uh, yeah, I've been with Deus since. Did you have the idea to start recording solo albums, or did Ryan push you and encourage you to do that? Was it a back and forth? How did it come about that you decided to start? doing records solo under your own name it was really ryan pushing me to you know because i kind of uh liked the idea in principle you know i kind of sort of said you know yes you know enthusiastically but not committing to you know an actual concrete deadline with a with something at the end of it, you know. Say, and, saying yes can be very easy. Like, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the way to that's do the it. First step. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's my <laughs> You know, and and he just wouldn't. You know, he wouldn't uh, let up. You know, he kept asking. I mean, in a nice way, in a good way. You know, just uh, encouraging me to uh, to to uh, in a very encouraging way. Um, and it just came about through these live, these early live shows. You know, I wanted to sort of, I wanted to capture what I was doing then uh, and, and uh, you know, create a record of it. So Collapse is very much that, you know, when, uh, if, you know, listening back to some of the recording, live recordings from around then, from around like, you know, between 2012 and 2014, it's like it pretty much all sounds like collapse. I mean, you know, with some, you know, little sort of digressions mm -hmm. in that years that I'm like, wait, what was I thinking? <laughs> um, so that was, that was what that was, you know, like distilling and sort of like distilling the essence of those, uh, of those live shows. I know Ryan can be very persistent, so I'm thankful that he, he was in his, uh, yeah polite yeah, yeah. polite and encouraging yeah <laughs> but this is your newest collection of work i'm sure you're working on other new stuff but normally what we do here at the podcast is start at the beginning and so you were born in scotland in 1961 right yep 61 and how did you get into making music and and this journey what was when did you start really listening to and appreciating music when did you start wanting to make music where I grew up, I grew up in a place called Paisley, which is on the west side of Glasgow. It's a separate town, but it's uh, basically part of the metropolitan area of Glasgow. It's a weird place. It's kind of... Uh, I, I visited there recently just to, you know, come to terms with some ghosts. And it's, I mean, it's it's kind of abandoned for the most part and I grew up I, I kind of got into the gang you know it was, it was a, Glasgow was notorious for the gang for gangs in the 70s it was a very sort of it was a, a really violent subculture and um just through stupidity or fear or whatever I got uh, into uh, I became a gang member it was 
the thing that got me out of uh, the gang life was punk. You know, punk happened and, you know, people, you know, often say that punk saved their life or something, you know, some element of music saved their life. But literally it was true for me. You know, I, you know, people were getting killed around me. My best friend who took me to my first punk show was uh, murdered uh, a couple of weeks after, a few weeks after that. Everyone who went to the punk shows was forming bands. You know, it was like just part of the culture in a way that, you know, we'd never really sort of seen before or I hadn't seen before. It was like a very exciting time. And I remember going with, uh, it was me, uh, my ex-wife Rose. I mean, she wasn't even my wife then. She was my girlfriend. We'd only been dating for a couple of a couple of months and uh, this other gentleman uh, this other guy in Hillcoat we went to two shows pretty much in short succession one was uh, it was The Clash and uh, with Suicide <laughs> support oh, wow. at the Glas- oh. Glasgow Apollo and <laughs> like I think it was in, like in 77 and wow uh, and it was it might have been early 78 and Suicide were just, it just blew my mind. I mean, the Glasgow punks hated it. They were just like, it was a, it was the closest that I've seen a show. It was, it, it was basically a riot was happening and someone threw an, a, a, a hatchet on stage. And many, years, many years later, I, I, I ran in, in Detroit. I ran into Martin Rev there and, um, and I, I told him about this story and he was like, I've been telling this story for years and like no one believes me. And he was like, who brings a hatchet to a, to a gig and throws it, at the, throws it at the band? And I was like, I saw it. I saw that hatchet flying through the air. And wow. luckily, luckily not, you know, but it came close to hitting, hitting Martin Rev. But anyway, so afterwards, like we were like, oh my God, this is insane. This is like, we, we you know, the clash, couldn't care less. It was just like, you know, pub rock as far as I was concerned. But Suicide was magical. And then also uh, a few weeks either before that or after that, around about the same time, we also saw the Ramones. And the Ramones, again, it was just like, yeah, this is just, you know, we don't want to make music like the Ramones, but just, you know, the, the just the simplicity and just the rawness, you know, even though that, they were kind of inhabit the same universe technically as the clash, you know, they were just real. <laughs> the I clash was, yeah. yeah. The clash were just some rich kids, you know, LARPing, you know, playing it being, you know, street and of course like the Ramones. So, yeah. I so mean, that, the Ramones, well, seeing, seeing the Ramones and suicide back then, I can't, I can't believe it. Yeah. Those are just like, that, that I, era to, to the greatest. <laughs> How could you not form a band? Right, right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, literally, I think I had so many friends in Glasgow formed bands, you know, just from seeing those shows, you know. And also, you know, like kids that were technically my enemies, you know, because they were in other gangs, you know, like they were all like in bands and we were all hanging out together and just, you know, <laughs> playing in the same bills <laughs> so that was you know i mean it, it you know the idea of playing music uh was always something that i was interested in but it didn't i mean coming from like the upbringing that i had in the culture that i had it wasn't something that was like super encouraged or anything like that you know and just this was just like there was no you know barrier to entry you know every, you know you just either stole some equipment or one of your friends stole some equipment. You know, it was like everything that we had was like stolen from somewhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that was that was that band the poems? Was that yeah. the, the yeah. band you started? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was you and Rose and another friend? Yeah, in Hillcoat. Okay, so yeah. the three of you that saw that show, you did, you just formed that band. So it yeah, was pretty really much that. like straight <laughs> afterwards, you know. With I mean, we none of us could really play. We were just sort of making it up. Rose uh, was playing drums. I had a reel-to-reel tape deck that I was uh, um, making. 
collages and loops with, you know, like I was very ahistorical. I, I knew nothing about, you know, music concrete or, you know, any mm-hmm. of any of that. I just I didn't have any, you know, any grounding in that. I just was just playing around. I would go to the flea market and buy these tapes and make loops and cups. And I had some janky old synth that, you know, that barely worked, but sounded insane. And Ian pretty much figured out how to play guitar, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, but yeah, it was it, it was an interesting time. It's, uh, um, you know, we kind of fell in with... Um, I mean, there was these, uh, you know, older mentors, you know, that um, there were kind of anarchists slash situationists that uh, took all the gang kids under their wing. I mean, in a really sort of ad hoc informal way and just were turning us on. I mean, it, I, uh, there was one guy, Tommy Keys, who uh, had this label called Groucho Marxist. Who was putting out all of this, uh, all of this uh, Paisley punk uh, stuff? Apparently, uh, um, some of it's going to be reissued. So I'm kind of excited to see what happens. I mean, it's not like good in any sort of objective <laughs> sense. You know, the stuff that that we did was pretty, you know, you know, pretty sort of incompetent. But it's got like a crazy energy. I mean, we were kids. Um, uh, but yeah, they were just turning us on. Like I was going, they were like giving me, you know, I would go around to Tommy's house and he'd give me like situationist texts and he was the first person they turned me on at Throbbing Gristle. It was like, I had like second annual report, you know, when it just came out and it, it was, it was really great as these, you know, as, as like as a 16, 17 year old to be, have, have someone, you know, uh, expose you to this other world and not in a sort of like condescending way so yeah strawberry switchblade rose's band obviously starts taking off uh with trees and flowers and just kind of growing from there until the the first album what were you doing at this time were you still making music were you doing focusing on something else i was um uh, I was still making music, but I, I know I, you know I was helping out with Strawberry Switchblade, just you know, in some like kind of background stuff, you know, like helping with so sort of, like logistics and you know like tour stuff and you know just trying to be supportive and and babies, you know, Rose and I had a kid, so was, you know sometimes I would uh, you know I I I would be the house husband <laughs> but yeah I, and i, I knew I, and i actually played on some uh some early strawberry switchblade stuff under an assumed name you know like some of the demos which i think have probably been you know reissued i'm not really sure but yeah i mean i i was happy just to you know just to kind of be in the background and be just sort of supportive uh for uh you know for what her and jill were were, were doing there's kind of a period where we start to see Rose involved with current 93 in the eighties as well, which I'm, I'm sure must've coincided with the move to London and being around more. So how did all that happen? And what was your relation to that stuff? That was an interesting sort of trajectory. And that came about through, um, we'd met, uh, Alex Ferguson from, uh, site who went on to be one of the founder members of psychic TV um, we'd met him in Glasgow. I think he was working with Orange Juice, uh, and he's from uh, Glasgow or from uh, just outside Glasgow. And we'd met him and really liked him, gone well with him. And you know, when we moved to uh, London, we contacted him, stayed in touch, and he, you know, he was like, "You should meet Genesis." Um, he you know you would really you would really like uh you'd really like jen jen would love to meet uh meet both of you so we kind of we went over to uh back road where uh um uh where uh jen and and paula lived and you know we just 
we became friends. Uh, Rose sang on a couple of Psychic TV tracks. I ended up, I toured with Psychic TV for about a month or so, recorded a couple of things. I never really fully considered myself a member of Psychic TV, but, you know, when... Um, uh, when I started to do solo stuff, it, you know, people would often say, you know, Drew McDowell's ex Psychic TV, ex Coyote. And I mentioned that to Jen. Uh, I was like, is that weird? You know, people saying that I was a member of Psychic TV. And she said, I say, I say that you are a member of Psychic TV. And that's <laughs> so all that yeah, matters. There we go. There you <laughs> so go. I was like, okay, I'm yeah. not going to argue with that. Yeah, um, yeah, there you go. So, uh, you know, Rose and I ended up sort of falling out with Jen back then. It was quite a, you know, it was a long-lasting... Rose was the first person to uh, uh, to fall out uh, with Jen. Not so much fall out, but just step back. And, you know, I, it took me a little while, you know, maybe a few weeks, a couple of months or something, you know, and uh, we... Uh, I mean, Jen was was brilliant, you know, was a genius. But, you know, one of the things that she was really incredible at was bringing all these amazing people together. Mm -hmm. You know, she had a, such a talent for being this uh, person who would connect other, other brilliant people. The flaw was then she would try and control them. <laughs> At the time, you know, I mean, I right. think Jen ch changed enormously, you know, definitely, years, like everyone does. But at the time, everyone fell out with her. It was just one of those things. It was like, uh, so we all fell out with her. And then uh, I, um, we had a uh, friend, uh, uh, B, who was a member of Psychic TV and then, you know, went on to do other things. And he was like, oh, I, I want to introduce you to David Tibet. You know, you've fallen out with, you've fallen out with Jen. <laughs> I want to connect you with so Because we were feeling a little, you know, not traumatized, but there's something, you know, like there's an intensity. There, there was an intensity of the relationship, you know. Like leaving a cult like, or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, you know, it, a bit like that, you know. Uh, so, you know, when, so it, there was definitely a bit of a sort of like shock from it of, a, of, a, uh, so B introduced this to David. To David and you know both of you know both Rose and I got you know got on really well. Uh, you know th there was a, a a real meeting of the minds uh, with uh, with Tibet and especially with Rose. You know like I I um you know Rose Rose's relationship sort of creative relationship with uh, with uh, Tibet. You know lasted for for a long time and probably still is probably still continuing in some ways i'm not exactly sure but i'm sure it is and so when was all this happening was this like 84 85 or 85 yeah 85 86 i think okay <clears throat> yeah 80, probably early 86 meet actually 85 probably meeting uh i think we met we got involved with uh, Jen uh, probably late 84, early 85. And, and then with Tibet, like late 85. Right. And Strawberry Switchblade must have been taking up more of Rose's time than too with the, the album coming out in 85. Right. I mean, yeah. that seems like a pretty high point for the project. It, you know, it was, but yeah, it was taking up all of our time, a lot of our time, but also, you know, uh, causing her incredible amounts of stress because as much as she was having fun with the pop star thing, it wasn't really who she was. I mean, she's just a fucking weirdo, you know? I mean, in a good way. I mean, Rose is like one of the strangest people that I've, you know, I've known in my life, you know? And I say that with, you know, with love. Of course. Love. Of course. But, you know, but yeah, so to, um, you know, the but she loved the whole 
playful aspect of being a pop star, but she hated the banality of it, you know, like, and by the, I mean the banality, just the crappy compromises that you have to do, you know, the, I mean, it sounds, especially back then, you know, in the early 80s, it sounded, you know, I mean, I think we're all probably aware of just the, what kind of pressures can be brought to a you know a young person especially like a young woman you know like all of the insane you know like pressures that that industry brought and the the way that their uh, agency was uh the way that the industry tried to drain them of agency you know tried to like mm-hmm. take away their decision making and and also just kind of like tried to push them in particular directions you know so i think this you know where those stress fractures started to appear was you know you know i mean appear to people that knew her were you know as she was really just you know blowing up and you know she would just do stuff just to be contrarian and piss piss everyone off. <laughs> <laughs> and so you guys, you know, have moved away from Jen, but were you? Did you remain in touch with Sleazy and Balance, or did you get back in touch with them at some point? What was your relationship with them around this time? Sleazy and Balance had already left Psychic TV before we uh, before we knew uh, Jen. So I think it was pretty much you know Tibet, uh, Tibet, Sleazy, Balance, and B. B had sort of stayed stayed friends with with them, but well, wasn't a participant anymore. But I think Tibet, Tibet, uh, Balance, and Sleazy all left pretty much at the same time. And that was before we, you know, we we, you know, we knew uh, that we'd met. So I didn't meet uh, Balance since it was Tibet introduced me to uh, pretty soon after meeting David. Uh, uh, he introduced me to uh, to to Jeff to John Balance. Right, right. Everyone called him Jeff. Jeff was his real name, so you know. Is that I how still you? Think- is that how yeah. you always referred to him? Was yeah. Jeff? Okay, Jeff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Never called him John, you know. And what, what yeah. about what about Sleazy Peter or Sleazy? Peter or Sleazy? It was interchangeable. Well, it was, okay, so with him, it was okay. Gotcha. <laughs> it was you know you you usually just shorten it to Sleaze. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. But Peter, you know, yeah, Peter or Sleazy. But uh, yeah, so Tibet took me to meet Jeff in a Italian coffee shop in Soho, and uh, I think in eight. 86 and uh you know it was just this incredible strong connection just right from you know just from the first second that i met him you know like i connected uh you know really uh uh really really deeply uh with and uh yeah i just you know from then on you know we were just like you know you know very close friends and then he uh invited me over to uh, their house in Chiswick, and I met, uh, I met Peter then, and again, you know, became, you know, became really close with with both of them. But when you met them, must have been right after or around when Horse Rotivator was releasing. It was just before. Uh, there was when they were recording Horse Rotivator, uh, because in the um, uh, in the there was a little insert that came with it and you know they uh they gave a shout out to to uh rose and i you know just <laughs> thanks to drew and rose which is nice i was like oh shit horse especially horse roar literally being probably my top five favorite albums of all oh. time uh, it's yeah. perfect. You know, to have, to have, <laughs> exactly. like, have, have a name check have a thanks you know and now it's like oh <laughs> it's so like close to my heart you know not you know not on the album of course but you know just being like name checked on it you know at heart i was just a coil fanboy <laughs> <laughs> i can uh i can sympathize <laughs> Uh, yeah, Horse Renovator, of course, being such a, a heavy record and steeped in death, the death of their friends, the dealing with the yeah. AIDS crisis at the time and a lot of the the laws and stigma about homosexuality, especially coming from something like Scatology, which was 
to them finding themselves and, you know, again, turning shit into gold, right? They were, they were yeah. taking this and applying it as, as magic, as alchemy and putting these intentions forth and horse rotivator continues to do that. And there's so much heaviness in the record that while it's a just beautiful record and wonderfully put together and recorded and everything, it's also a really sad and dark record, which is easy to forget when we've been listening to it for 20, 30, whatever years, right? Oh, very, I mean, very much so. And I'm glad you brought that up, you know, um, because it does become a little uh, decontextualized, you know, through time and just, you know, the softening of time, you know, that we don't, you know, realize uh, that. And it's good that you gave it the context of, you know, like the, uh, of the AIDS crisis, which was just killing so many people, you know, I mean, it was ripping through, you know, ripping through the world, you know, and ripping through this sort of cultural uh, world of, of London, of New York, of, you know, and, and, you know, the album was very much, even though it's not, um, it's not overt, it's not, you know, it doesn't say anywhere that that's what the album's about. I mean, it was very much, it was very much uh, birthed, uh, you know, birthed through that, you know, you know, you know, them losing so many friends in such a short, short, short period of time. And, you know, because of that, that it's an album then that allows you to explore death and all of its, you know, you know, all of its facets and all of its causes and all of its uh, consequences, you know, and it's really interesting. I think that, you know, that one song that is, a, you know, the cover, you know, the Leonard Cohen song, Who By Fire, it's just like, oh my God, they give it such grab. I mean, the song already has all the gravitas in the world, but, you know, their cover of it is just, uh, yeah, I mean, death and all of its you know complexities and yeah and uh, just a year before too right doing a cover of tainted love which yeah, yeah obviously the gloria jones version originally and then sort of famously again covered by a, a soft cell mark allman who of course would work with coil and be good yeah. friends with but uh you know proceeds of that being donated to uh aids research foundation and stuff too is like the terrence higgins yeah the terrence higgins foundation yeah uh that's one of the first record releases or anything of the, of its sort to be donated to that. I mean, it was again, like not even too long after we were going from grid to AIDS. Right. So this is still yeah. like very early in AIDS awareness. And yeah. I'm sure that losing friends and loved ones to it and uh, trying to do something about it, even in the limited way. Right. Cause it's yeah. not like coil was Aerosmith or something where this is yeah. a very small underground thing still. And, and the video, sorry, uh, the video for Tainted Love, I mean, which got, you know, famously just banned, you know, it's like, why would you ban something? It's just, it's like something like this that's basically, not, you know, it's it's not sugarcoating. It's basically someone visiting their lover in their deathbed and it's like so fucking dark. I mean, it's not like without, you know, it, uh, you know aesthetics but it's it's not aestheticized it's like it's pretty much like the you know just the horror of AIDS it's like fuck it yeah you know that should be shown you know like kids should have been shown that in the classroom right but yeah I mean it was like just the the I mean people I don't think realize you know like you know, you mentioned like the homophobia, you know, like and the the criminalization of it, you know, like we were dealing with the Thatcher government. Not only was it taking the previous laws against uh, homosexuality, but we're, you know, expanding on it, making it actually illegal to teach uh, teach in schools, you know, that there is such a thing as homosexuality, you know, it was, you know, and that it's okay. <laughs> you could be, you know, like teachers would could go to prison for that. I mean, I don't know if anyone actually did, but in theory, the, the you know, the, the, but yeah, I mean, that's, it was a definitely a dark and a, a horrific time. So around this time, did you start doing any Sonic work with them. I know it, w it wouldn't be until the '90s that you were officially a member, but were there any 
experiments before you did become an official member of Coil? Yeah, I mean, we we <laughs> we I, I think the first because we 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 got very very much into the. Um, Balance, Lizzie and I got pretty much at the same time got really enthusiastic about you know the emerging club culture, you know acid house techno, all of that, you know that was that started and uh, uh, that at least for us we became aware, you know uh, in the UK got so sort of like started in uh, the spring and early summer of ATA, you know the pe- uh, people were like listening to these records that were getting made in like Detroit, Chicago and New York and you know bringing them over and playing them in British clubs and we were just absolutely mesmerized by it so we started to go to these clubs this was before it even became a bit when it was still underground, you know, when it was like 50 to 100 people all just like out of their minds. And so we were like, let's, <laughs> so we, we wanted to do a take on this, you know, just this. So we, 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 we got together and jammed. Uh, I don't think it's ever been uh, heard. And it probably, I'm probably super grateful that it hasn't <laughs> but you know we did some crazy speed field uh actually you know probably now it would sound fairly like contemporary because it was like way faster <laughs> you know way faster than you know uh techno or, or house music was uh you know the norms then the whatever the 120 bpm this must have been like you know <laughs> This was definitely about 180 BPM amphetamine fueled uh, techno. I don't know even if you could call it techno. It was just insane. It was probably more like techno of techno of butthole surfers. If someone had described techno to the butthole surfers, <laughs> like go make a techno record, but you can't hear it. There is an interview in in this uh, conversations with Coil Collection that mentions I think Balance says that like you were making some acid house techno tracks with them in as early as '88 yeah. before before joining. I think yeah. it's from around the time that you were kind of officially a member. Which uh, there's a couple of interviews in there that kind of focus on the stuff happening at that time, the Born Again Pagans era. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read the book yet. You know, I, I have a uh, um, Mark Pilkington gave me a copy when I was in London uh, a few weeks ago, but uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much in here. And, you know, I was I was on the like coil uh, mailing and discussion list in the 90s where they were both present in advertising and selling off releases and all of this stuff. And so a lot of interviews, a lot of news stories, they would even post stuff. We were talking about the, the stigmatism and the stuff, even carrying into the, the 90s of the sort of uh, homophobia that was going on in the UK and stuff that was happening there that, that they were affected by or like new, crazy news stories that you were like. You know, being in the U.S. and and being younger at the time, it's like I can't imagine <laughs> what that happening well, or what that must be like. I mean, one of the most horrific things was um, the tattooist and piercer, uh, Mister Sebastian. Um, he was someone. You know, one of the I think sleazy, uh, unacknowledged is it's very unacknowledged, but he was someone who was basically one of the first people to introduce what was basically a very underground gay phenomenon into sort of you know like so genital piercing was something that you know that he was uh getting you know something that was very much just in the you know an underground uh uh gay culture thing you know bdsm adjacent and then he introduced that to to jen and you know it so through that it became you know it became fairly mainstream but um and i don't think a lot of people know that you know that that's where uh you know it was the fascination of like oh my god this band psychic tv you know they've got like general piercings they've got <laughs> you know uh, it, it, and that was you know it, it got picked up by you know by the wider 
wider subculture, not a wider culture, but still subculture back then in the eighties. I mean, even in the but, research book, Modern Primitives, right? Like that's yeah. that's there's there's stuff on Jen in there. Yeah, yeah. And it was Slesia who introduced Jen to 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 that. Um through Alan Oversby. Uh, so Alan was uh incredible tattoo artist, piercer, just a really amazing um uh you know really amazing guy and he did a lot of you know psychic tvs uh tattoo he did my first tattoo in like 85 my first piercing <laughs> then um uh and then later in the 90s he got caught up in this um horrific uh entrapment case you know there was this him and some of his friends or people that he knew were like basically had you know had a sort of bdsm type group all gay men and they would basically write each other letters and they would talk about their fantasies you know all consensual all you know like all just fant you know like just all just fantasies and one of these letters got intercepted got fell into the hands of the police and you can look it up it's called operation spanner and the cops basically charged these like six people with you know the most you know like i think like the highest level of crime before you get to attempted murder or whatever you know grievous bodily harm yeah. or something like that and um they all went to court i think some of them did some prison time just for basically talking about you know so like be you know just i mean pretty extreme bdsm stuff i mean it was you know but it was all sort of consensual and it was all just fantasy but they decided the cops decided that this was a conspiracy to actually harm each other <laughs> and they got like you know it, they went through the it basically destroyed their lives you know like these these guys just got you know hauled through the court system you know their names were all over the newspapers because it was salacious you know the mm. the news you know the sun and whatever you know papers had them splashed all over and um yeah i mean i i don't know how much prison time that they did but i think some of them or if not all of them did did some prison time and that was not that long ago that was like the 90s it's insane to think that that's like you know uh that that was just part of the culture right so around this time too is when they're going to start working on love's secret domain and obviously we think of coil Sleazy and Balance are forever the central figures, but there was many rotating cast members as you were one of them. Another one is Stephen Thrower, who uh, whose work as f a film writer and film historian we all really love, as well as his work in Coil. Do you recall what his contribution at that time was, and what and and just what was his? What was his energy around the coil at that time? Were you hanging out with him much or did you not really hang out with him too much? You know, I, I didn't know um, Stephen that well because whenever I was over there, Stephen, I think Stephen wasn't living in London maybe. So uh, I never got to meet him. And, you know, the friendship was just sort of, you know, was o over time evolving. And I wasn't part of... Um, uh, I was asked to be on Love Secret Domain, and they were recording, uh, or at least on window pane. Yeah. So I was supposed to go to the studio to record uh, with them when they were doing window pane, <clears throat> and I stopped off at a friend's house. Uh, uh, this guy Fraser Clark, who uh, is no longer with us, but he had this magazine called Encyclopedia Psychedelica really incredible like you know psychedelic magazine of the very much of its time you know uh, all of the usual tropes and obsessions and uh popped in to see fraser for some reason <laughs> and he he's like oh yeah i just did a batch of acid i just uh I, I, he had a spray bottle that he was spraying blotter and he'd run out of blotter 
And he was like, so I just sprayed it on some wall wallpaper, but I don't think it's very like absorbent. It tears me off a chunk that was about like six inches by six inches at least. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I mean, you're definitely going to have to take quite a, you know, I don't think it really absorbed, so you're going to have to take a big chunk. So I take a chunk of this wallpaper as I'm heading to the studio and then my next like conscious my next coherent memory is uh I'm I'm in Glastonbury <laughs> I'm at Glastonbury <laughs> Festival and I'd ran into some friends you know somewhere in London and they'd you know like tripping off my head and they were like I couldn't remember where I was supposed to be. And they were like, come with us to Glastonbury. You know, we climbed the fence, got into Glastonbury. All of this, I don't remember. I just remember being told it afterwards. But my first coherent memory is just coming to Glastonbury and seeing all of these tents around me and like, what the fuck? And then like going crazy because I couldn't find my tent. I didn't have a tent, but I was convinced that someone I, I was convinced that someone had stolen my tent amongst these thousands of tents. One of these tents was mine that someone had taken from me. So I was like climbing into people's tents and was like, is this my tent? So so I never was on window pane, but in the you could I it think, could have been it could have been a, a sister track wallpaper. It could have been <laughs> yeah, window yeah, pane and wallpaper. wallpaper. Of course, you know. Yeah. But, it was a private uh, performance. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, somewhere on either on the sleeve or in the etched, uh, uh, you know, in the etching and the beside the la in the, the the label it says thanks to Drew for almost being on the record. Oh, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to look at this. I'm about yeah. to pull yeah. up the CD and, and see it's if I can somewhere, find it. Somewhere on the, yeah. you know, on either on the cover or on the physical record itself. Hey, who, yeah, hey, was, who, who, uh, who is playing Glastonbury? I don't even remember. <laughs> I, just, I don't remember Sim anything Simple about minds? it. Was it <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> like, I'd, have been the, I'd have been the insane person running on the stage, you know, talking about the first tapes, the first tapes. If you, if you just listen to the first tapes, everything would have been so much as the bouncers are like, getting me in a headlock, dragging me off. <laughs> but yeah, oh that, was, uh, that, that, that would have been my first, like, probably official coil release if I hadn't taken that <laughs> huge chunk of wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Love Secret Domain comes out first uh, US available release, right? It's on it's on Wax Tracks. It's maybe got an appeal to the industrial music that's happening more in the US and the Wax Tracks scene as well with its strange rhythms. Although I think a lot of those people also didn't know what to do with its lyrical themes and a lot of the darkness and more experimental and ambient works on that record. And Latin percussion and weird spoken vocals and tons of psychedelia. Do you remember how that record was received at the time or if it did anything for them? Was it, was the profile raised then? Was there some, anything going on behind the scenes with that? You know, I, it was, it was kind of disappointing for me to, because I would play it to friends that were part of the, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, that were into the sort of, you know, that were into rave culture or, you know, into thinking that they would just, the weirdness of this would just create like an affinity. And, Again, it was like I probably another one of those litmus tests, one of those uh, you know Faust tapes type litmus mm -hmm. tests. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, "I don't get it. How? Why are you letting me hear this?" You know, like you, you know, and and that was disappointing. People that you thought that would like it that didn't. I mean, of course, many people did. I mean, it, you know, but uh, it wasn't really the. Um, you know the the as many as the of the at, at least at the time you know many of the, the you know the techno and acid people i think some of the deeper heads you know that were listening you know at the uh, after parties and the chill out zones mm -hmm. you know that uh, it was getting played i mean i definitely had you know had, had a few friends that that did really appreciate it but Yes, some some of them it was just like it went right over their heads. 
Well, uh, just a few years later will be your first sort of official coil appearance, right? Uh, with, uh, with the coil versus elf uh, yeah. first dark ride and NASA Arab yeah, yeah, 12 yeah. inch. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did that come about? Was that, was that, did you make that before you were sort of, I don't know, officially in the band and then that was the invitation or was it like, I, you want to be in the band, let's record this thing? Yeah, I think this, it was pretty much, they asked me into the studio to do it and, you know, it was like, and this is you going to, actually, yes, it was after that. It was after I did it. I think it went so well that they were like, you you know, um, uh, that they asked me to, to, to be part of, part of the, part of the band. And around that same time, I think they were kind of they were working on the Angelic Conversation stuff too. Is that right? The the soundtrack for the Derek Jarman thing, or maybe a little before then? Yeah, I think that was a little before then. I wasn't, you know, I was obviously wasn't involved in any of that. And I'm getting the timeline. I'm a little hazy on the timeline. Um, yeah, I think that would have been before. That was definitely a little bit. That was yeah. That was a, a bit before then. Um, but, uh, you know, and I think one of the, uh, you know, part of the impetus of asking me to be, I think they'd gotten sort of like bogged down in the, um, uh, the whole backwards, you know, the album that, you know, because at the same time they were trying to record and they'd been recording backwards for you know, for at least a few months, I wasn't invited to be part of the sessions. I think they were, I said bogged down because that's really what it felt like, you know, they'd been given a ton, you know, a, a budget, you know, by, um, you know, it's like nothing, it was Trent Reznor or nothing through Interscope. So it was like big label budget, you know, with this idea that Coil could be this, you know, this uh this big label band and and it was a you know it was a bad fit not Trent itself you know that wasn't a bad fit I think they you know they you know they like Trent and and you know obviously vice versa but the idea of them shoehorning trying to come up with something that would satisfy because no matter what you're gonna have to yeah you know, when you're in a big label you know you're gonna have to satisfy some some master you know you're mm -hmm. gonna have to satisfy the boss you know you're working for the boss <laughs> at that point yeah. and it's very you know it, it would be very it would be i just don't see Interscope taking a coil record and saying, "Yeah, this is exactly what we want," you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that ends part one of our discussion with Drew McDowell. Stay tuned next week for part two when we get into Drew's time in Coil, and we go through all the albums he was on, all the way through to his current solo output. So. Thank you so much, Drew, for taking the time to sit down with us and look out for part two next Wednesday. You have been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 20 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at Noise Extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at Noise Extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to Noise.